0: We kick things off today with some news out of the Archdiocese of Hartford that uh, Bishop Frank is basically breaking for us. And then Bishop talks about Pope Francis and his health, because uh, His Excellency has been receiving questions about what happens when a pope becomes incapacitated or cannot govern the church. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, and then we move into conclaves. all about conclaves and how they work and who can be elected Pope and and how that process happens. So, stay tuned. We're here on your radio at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM. We're here on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. You can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at VeritasCatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee. And it is my pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano.
1: Steve, good morning to you. And we have news today. We have news. Okay. Right? Let's, yeah. I'm excited to hear what the news is. Yeah. The. Um, well, first of all, it's good to see you. Now that we're on the cusp of summer. So hopefully we can have some more relaxing uh, months than the frenetic yes. time we have just lived through. But, but it's all good. Right. good. Thank God. It's all good. Anyway, the news is this. Uh, on the day of our taping... Uh, it was announced by the uh, the Apostolic Nuncio that there is a co ajuda archbishop-elect of the Archdiocese of Hartford. Wow, and, okay. And that bishop is Bishop Christopher Coyne, who is the bishop of Burlington, Vermont, which is really the Catholic bishop of the state of Vermont because there's only <laughs> one diocese in all Vermont. Actually, are not a <laughs> lot of people up there to begin with, but I mean, it's just... So that is really important news. And I thought we'd start with that. Yeah, Yeah, what does it mean? Yeah, please. Okay, Mm -hmm. so Archbishop Blair, first of all, let me just say this publicly. I'm very grateful to Archbishop Blair. First of all, he is a very wonderful leader of faith. But on a personal level, he has been a very good friend, a very good mentor, And when I came to the diocese, I came to the diocese um, in 2013. If my memory serves me correctly, Archbishop Blair came just a few months after. So we've really worked together for almost 10 years. And Archbishop Blair was the auxiliary of Detroit. He was the Bishop of Toledo and then came to become the Archbishop. So he was a seasoned bishop in administration as an ordinary and particularly in those first few years, um, when I became the bishop of Bridgeport and I was it was like on the job training, he was extremely kind to me and very supportive. So I just want to acknowledge publicly my personal thanks to him for all that he has done. And of course, he's governed in a time of great challenge. I know the Archdiocese is going through tremendous reconfiguration, and that's met with, you know, different opinions and all the rest. And we've talked about how we're going to try to do it in a different way. But nonetheless, um, I think all the people of Hartford are very grateful to him. Now, he turned 74 a few months ago, which means that at 75, which would be the early spring of next year, Archbishop Blair would be eligible to retire at the decision of the Pope. And therefore, there are two ways to approach the retirement of a bishop. The first is that he would stay in term, in office, and the search process begins, and that when he's uh, when the Pope decides that there is ready for a change, which would occur after his retirement, like after the date of retirement, that a person would be announced and installed as the new ordinary. That's the ordinary way. But what's becoming actually more common is this other method where there is a co adjutor bishop appointed. Now, what does that mean? All right, so first of all, a bishop is a bishop, right? A bishop is a bishop. The successor of the apostles entrusted to him, the three munera, right, of sanctification, teaching, and governance it is the fullness of the priesthood, the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, if you are an ordinary, that is a diocesan bishop, an auxiliary bishop, or a coadjutor bishop, you're all bishops. Even the bishop of Rome, the Holy Father, is a bishop. Mm-hmm. Archbishops of course are the heads of larger dioceses and oftentimes heads of provinces so our province is Connecticut and Rhode Island and then of course the cardinals and all the rest we talked about that all right so going back to coadjutor so in a sense the easiest way to understand a coadjutor is to see him as an auxiliary bishop or a co a colleague bishop with the right of succession which means that when Archbishop Blair retires, uh, Bishop Coyne will become Archbishop Coyne and he will um, automatically become the Archbishop of Hartford. So there's no other discernment to be done, the process is done. Right? And to be honest, I'm not sure, he very well may be Archbishop now to be honest, that I'm, that actually I'm not certain of, right, if as co perhaps he is. So um, that's exciting because in this way of doing things, there's a transition. Mm-hmm. So you're working with the ordinary, and the new ordinary has time to meet people, see how things are going, learn some of the principal challenges as well as the opportunities. It, 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 in many ways, it's um, in my mind, it's more helpful than just arriving. And certainly the bishop is there to help you, but it's different because you automatically take on responsibility from day one in the traditional way of doing it. This way, there's a gradual transition. So I think this is a wise way of doing things personally, but um, no one has really asked me, but I'll <laughs> to give my, my opinion. Um, now for Bishop Coyne, uh, Bishop Coyne and I uh, were in Rome together. We, we studied in Rome at the same time. Course he for the Archdiocese of Boston, myself for the Diocese of Brooklyn. So I know Bishop Coyne fairly well. In fact, he was kind enough to serve on the subcommittee of the Catechism when I asked him. and He did that for a number of years. Because his particular expertise is communication, which is extraordinarily hmm. important in the life of the Church today. He is—I'm I, I, guessing—he is about six or seven months older than I am. Um, he, uh, if I, if I'm not mistaken, he, he just turned 65, um, last week. So please God, he will be Archbishop for 10, 11, 12 years. And uh, both in the subcommittee, he was chair of the committee on communications at the USCCB. He had an extraordinarily difficult position in Boston. He was the director of communications soon after Cardinal Law left the Archdiocese of Boston. I mean, and that was extraordinarily difficult times. And he did it with tremendous grace. He did it with tremendous expertise, right? Competence. So I think our, so. So I want to congratulate Bishop Coyne. I think he's an excellent choice. He will do a great job. I think the people of Hartford are thankful for Archbishop Blair and will be extraordinarily thankful for Archbishop Coyne. And I personally, on a personal level, I look forward to working with him because uh, we already have a friendship. So it's I feel what I have with Archbishop Blair. We can I can continue with uh, with Bishop Coyne. So that's news, no? That's excellent. Yeah, that is that is news. So I guess
0: does the appointment. Of, of Bishop Coyne basically mean that, uh, does it signal that Pope Francis will likely
1: accept uh, Archbishop Blair's retirement at 75? I would, um, I really don't know. I mean, I would think okay. so. I would think so. Um, because when Bishop Tobin received the coadjutor in in Providence about a month, month and a half after he turned 75, his retirement was accepted. But of course, see the interesting thing is, because you are the coadjutor, does not mean that you will actually get to the finish line and become the bishop of the diocese. So, for example, uh, Bishop Bernie Hebda was the coadjutor archbishop of Newark. And he mm-hmm. was for, I think it was supposed to be for a couple of years. And then because there was a need in the Archdiocese of, of St. Paul, Minneapolis, he was transferred right. to become the Archbishop of St. Paul, Minneapolis before he actually could assume becoming the Archbishop of Newark. Interesting. Okay. Right? But but <laughs> but with Bishop uh, Hebda, he was coadjutor for, oh, it was almost more than two years. So the, huh. there is okay. the possibility of things happening. But now we're talking maybe 10 months. So I would think so. I would think so. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So anyway, exciting times for our province and for our state. And of course the archbishop is the leader of the Catholic conference. So it's extremely important. Right. Who that person is because of all our relationship with the governor, with the state government, our attempt to kind of influence, if I could use that word or guide things on the state level so that unfortunately the, um, The animosity and the um, hostility that exists against the church in so many different realms that we have a way to try to to dampen that, mitigate that, help people understand that they're reacting to caricatures, they're not reacting to the truth, right? Right. But it's very hard to convince people about the truth. A lot of people are not interested, (laughs) especially in leadership. They're more interested in influence. They're more interested yes. in in, um, in their uh, their groups that they have to satisfy. That's all another story. Anyway, so that's the news.
0: Awesome. Mm-hmm. Thank you for breaking that here. Oh, by the <laughs> way, one
1: other thing for people's knowledge. Bishop Coyne will be received in the archdiocese. And I presume that's going to happen in early fall because summertime a lot of people are away, probably in September. What's interesting is, When he becomes the Archbishop of Hartford, there is no further ceremony. There is no Mm -hmm. installation mass. In other words, the welcome is in some ways the installation because it's automatic. So when I was made the Bishop of Bridgeport, we had the installation mass, if you remember. He will have the welcoming mass and ceremony, which is in a sense his installation, which is another interesting difference between the two. Mm Okay. 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 So now, what do you want to talk about? The weather, sports? We'll talk about the Mets. It's very depressing, extremely depressing, so we won't go there, (laughs) right? No, actually, the topic I wanted to talk about is something that, believe it or not, I'm still celebrating confirmations. Wow. (laughs) My last confirmation is the Solemnity of St. Peter and Paul, the 29th of June. It's the latest I have ever confirmed in my entire life, and these are not small classes. At St. Charles Borromeo in Bridgeport, I confirmed 131 young people in one ceremony. Oh my goodness. At, wow. at Our Lady Guadalupe in Danbury, there were 71. So and school is out. So it's right. it, it really is a great sign. I mean, it's tremendous. But um <clears throat> a number of people have come to me and with with genuine worry or concern, maybe the better word is concern, mm-hmm. about the Pope's health. And about what it means if the Pope truly were to become sick. Mm -hmm. How, what would happen, right, in those circumstances? And I think that may be helpful if we could do a little tutorial for all of us. But what happens if a Pope were to get sick? What's the procedures? And whenever... And you know, and please God, it's not for a very, very, very long time. When there is a need for a, a, a new pope to be elected, which you know was ten years ago, right, with Pope Benedict. Mm-hmm. What yes. um, what's the actual process? What's the inner process? Like what goes on behind closed doors? And I thought that would be interesting for us to talk about, right? In the hope, please God, that we will that part of it we will not need for a very long time. Right. So, first, just a word about the pope. You know, he is 86 years old and in remarkably good health for an 86-year-old. The man has stamina which far surpasses his chronological age. Like, for example, when the Holy Father returned to the Vatican after, being, after his latest surgery, in the morning alone he had eight meetings, or what they call <laughs> audiences, eight meetings right now, you're 86 you're recovering from surgery it's remarkable and you know people will think well that's ceremonial and you just sit there no that's not the case that is not the case just the preparation if you meet the president of brazil which he did you're not going to go into a meeting without being prepped and all of that work has to be reviewed beforehand so it's just so the man's pace is enormous right yeah and um recently Just a few days ago, the Pope was not able to give a speech that was prepared because he had difficulties breathing. Now, the difficulties from breathing are attributed to the anesthesia because there are people like the Holy Father who do not take well to anesthesia. That is why he has not done the surgery on his knee. Um, he, it's, and I know a, a number of friends who shy away from it precisely because it does have different effects on different people. So in a sense, he is still recovering is my point. And thank God he's mm-hmm. doing well and he can travel and we will welcome him at, at World Youth Day with about a million other young people. It will be tremendous. Okay. So now the question is this. What happens if the Pope is incapacitated but is still alive? what happens government-wise in the church? Or another question to ask is, who was in charge of the church during the three hours when the Pope was under anesthesia and could not make any decisions? So, to draw a parallel, God forbid, whenever a Pope dies, it's clear, the canons are very clear as to what happens. In the period of vacancy whatever that time may be, there is the Camerlingo, who is a deacon, uh, it's a a cardinal chosen by the Holy Father, specifically to care for the church in conjunction with the College of Cardinals, when there is no pope, that is, the pope has passed away. And believe it or not, um, the Camerolingo is Cardinal Kevin Farrell, who is an American. An American, right? yeah. Actually, he's Irish-born, but he considers himself an American because he spent almost his entire priesthood in the United States. That probably is a first in history that I'm aware of, mm. that God forbid, whenever uh, Pope Francis uh, passes on to the Lord, if if Farrell is still in that position, would be the first time an American's in that. So the answer to the question right, is... What happened during those three hours? Nothing. What happens if the Pope is incapacitated, that is, like he's in a coma, God forbid, or unresponsive? Nothing. He still governs the church. He still governs the church. Now, why is that an issue that Benedict spoke about and even Francis has spoken about? For two reasons. It's become an issue. It's a lacune, and it's an issue that has to be addressed sooner or later. The first is <clears throat> that people are living much longer.
0: Right.
1: And that's the, the, the power of modern medicine. So it's not unusual that you have people now in their 90s. I have a dear friend of mine whose grandmother, I mentioned, is 104, lives alone. She drives. I mean, it's remarkable. <clears throat> and that's nutrition. It's good living. And it's also medicine. It's modern medicine. Yes, so one of the things that comes up is as you do grow older, there is the possibility that medicine can keep you physically alive, but you are not able either to, you're not conscious, conscious, or you you're not able to to have the same faculty of mind that you did before. And that will only continue to grow as medical technology continues to grow, okay? So that's one thing, right? And and the second thing is, the, in, the, in the church in particular, the, there is a norm, right? And we'll talk about that in a second, where if the Pope is incapacitated, right, that he could, in fact, be replaced. So for example, Pope Francis has already said he's written a letter to the Secretary of State that says, if he were incapacitated, that he has a letter of resignation. But the problem is there is no one competent to decide if a pope is incapacitated. Hmm. No one has that competency, right? So in a sense, the law says, right, that only the pope ultimately has universal jurisdiction. No one can decide that, but himself, who's supreme authority. So that's where the lacune is, right? Now, bishops can be incapacitated, right? And they can be declared incapacitated, and the Pope can remove them, right? Mm-hmm. For a Pope, believe it or not, for bishops, there are four reasons you could be incapacitated, right? Right? Captivity, banishment, exile. Can you imagine being exiled? And literal, like, incapacity, physical and mental incapacity. And, of course, the Pope would decide that for a bishop, right? But in Canon 335, it says, The Holy See finds itself either vacant or entirely impeded. And in that situation, nothing can be altered in the governance of the church. So once again, what does entirely impeded mean in that case? Who judges that? right? And therefore, there is no criteria. So there is an article in Aletheia who, if people are listening to this, a lot of what I'm drawing from comes out of that article. It's fascinating because canonists have been thinking about this but without the guidance of the Pope and ultimately his approval, there really is nothing. But it is a fascinating question. In the United States, for example, when the president goes under anesthesia, he, he transfers power to the vice president temporarily. Of course, God forbid there could be the declaration of war. Now, with the governance of the church, there's not going to be, I don't think, a major crisis in three hours, right? <laughs> but three years or two years, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So that's right. how the modern world is, is changing things for the church. So now, popes since Pius the twelfth have been struggling with this. So, for example, you know, popes were kidnapped in the French Revolution. All right, presumably one would say that couldn't happen. But in World War II, there was real fear it would happen, right? especially after Mussolini was overthrown. There was fear that yeah. Hitler would... Kidnap Pius XII. Hmm. And Pius XII said in a letter that he wrote in his resignation, he said, If they kidnap me, they will take Cardinal Pacelli, they will not be taking the Pope. Interesting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. And of course, there was actually uncovered a plot for it that was thwarted for Hitler to have kidnapped the Pope. Crazy stuff. Right? John the 23rd also struggled with this question, especially after he was diagnosed with uh, stomach cancer. Hmm. But again, and because he was leading the Second Vatican Council, I mean, you can't have the Pope unresponsive for three months, six months, because the council would freeze, everything would freeze, particularly in that point in the church's life. Again, he did nothing. He, uh, uh, in fact, he was ill for just a short period of time, and John the 23rd died. Then Paul the 6th publicly said that he would never renounce, but then he too contemplated what would happen if God forbid he went into coma or suffer from dementia or was totally incapacitated in the work of the church. Right? And not, again, he couldn't resolve the issue. Then of course, what Benedict did was preemptive resignation. Right. That's how he dealt with this issue. And for all the criticism that Benedict had by some quarters of the church, the truth is he was at John Paul's side when John Paul became more and more frail. So in effect, the governance of the church continued uninterrupted because if there was a man alive who understood the mind and heart of John Paul, it was Benedict and Joseph Ranziger and John Paul trusted him. Mm-hmm. but absent having someone, and that's unique. I mean, that is absolutely unique. So I think in the end, he he chose to resign preemptively because he knew his health was diminishing and he could no longer travel the way he needed to travel, especially World Youth Day. Okay. But he asked for a study on the question and nothing ever came. So to this point, this is an issue that – quite honestly, is something that Francis or future popes in the next 10, 20, 30 years will really have to address because the the fundamental premise here is that the cardinals don't elect the pope by human terms. They are the vessel and instrument of the discernment and grace of the Holy Spirit to choose the pope. So in effect, It's the Holy Spirit who is the discerner, not human agency.
0: Yep, He's in charge, right? Not us,
1: right? So uh, this letter exists for the Pope, the Holy Father, Pope Francis, right? But the truth is, I'm not sure how it could, how one could, and act on it. And that is why I think, in the end, the Pope has said, the, the the renunciation of the papacy is really in the hands of God. It is determined by whether or not. The Lord grants the Pope the grace to be able to govern, and we pray for his long health, and we do. Every day, every Mass, we pray for the Pope. Yes. But it's just an interesting situation, is it not? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, and obviously, uh, as you as you said, Excellency, the like, Popes have been struggling with this idea for a
1: long, long – for decades, mm-hmm. which I, I – you know, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, if you look at it, just kind of like summarizing for, for our conversation, it's the Holy Spirit that discerns and moves the agency of the college, which we'll talk about after the break, like more of the details of how that works, to okay. choose the successor of Peter. So the real question is, it's not even a canonical question. It's a, it's a theological question. So how does the Holy Spirit, in what way could the Holy Spirit move the discernment Perhaps of the college to determine that in fact the Pope is permanently incapacitated, I'm not sure the yeah. answer to that question <laughs> right? and smarter men, men men and women than me as canonists and theologians, I'm sure there's a group that just issued a couple of ideas just in uh, in Italy just two years ago. It's a question that we have to we have to ponder it's just pondering really
0: mm-hmm hmm. Okay, so Excellency, let's take a break and then come back and we'll, we'll talk more about this and, and maybe about the conclave yep. and, mm-hmm. and how those things mm-hmm. work. And mm-hmm. Okay, so this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network, and we'll be right back.
2: The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org.
1: You know, it is a fascinating question. It's a fascinating question. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and what I and, and one question that came up as you were talking, Excellency, is so bishops have to uh, submit their resignation mm-hmm. at 75. Yes. Cardinals can't vote after the age of 80. Correct. A pope can be 93 and still yeah. going. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. So. Yeah, but I have some fun facts at this time at the end about popes. We okay. Talk about yeah. All right. No, it, it, exactly. He could live to be 150. But that's right. the point. The point is, before we go tape. the point is, in the old days, then there was a natural tenor to life that you would not live to be 100 right. and with a body that's debilitated or a mind that's debilitated you would just naturally die but now natural death with it's it can be staved off because what yeah. was extraordinary 50 years ago is ordinary now open heart surgery is ordinary it's not extraordinary right. anymore yeah okay yeah here we go okay <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: All right. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, this is fascinating. I feel like it's just going to get even more interesting.
1: Yeah, because it's um, – you know, I, I did this research. I myself have forgotten most of this because it's the sort of detail. Please, God, you don't use often. You don't see often. And some right. of this, you don't see at all. I mean the protocols of a conclave. Benedict had revised them. Um, um, I'm not sure if Pope Francis revised them further. He may have. But it's its own law that governs the interregnum. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because of the principles it's based on. It's not so much the detail, but but the principles that it's based on. I just find fascinating. So whenever, God forbid, a pope dies, what happens? Well, we just mentioned the Cardinal Camerlengo, who is the Pope's, if one could say, his representative to the College of Cardinals in his absence, which is in this case, in his death. He does two mm-hmm. things. He takes up residence, in, traditionally, in the Vatican Palace, and he governs the church. Right? Now, his first task is to verify that the Pope is dead. And you know how that's done. You, you know the the ritual. No. No. Okay. So there is a silver hammer. Okay. And he goes to the body of the Pope and he takes the hammer and he gently taps his head three times oh. and calls him by his baptismal name. And if he does not respond after the third time, he pronounces the Pope's death. Oh, my word. Right. Now, that's a ritual. Right, in right. fact, there is medical verification that the Pope is yeah, dead. Of course. Right? So with Pope John Paul, they administered an electrocardiogram. Right? Um, it, it's, it's interesting that um, it, there is a need to verify that the Pope is truly dead, but he's addressed by his baptismal name, not by his his papal name. Because in the moment of his death, Pope... Or pauper, we are all equal before God in judgment. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, wow. Right? right. Wow. Okay. Then once it's verified that the, there is a papal vacancy, the next thing the cardinal does, the cardinal Camerlengo, is he takes both the fisherman's ring and there is a papal seal and smashes them both. Because all formal decrees... Right, are sealed with the with the papal mm-hmm. seal, and the papal ring, as we've said before in our other podcast, was designed to be able to verify that I am the yes. one who is writing this. Right? So, for example, the decree that named me a pope, uh, a pope, and the decree that named me a bishop <laughs> by the pope, <laughs> right? That's a bit of insanity on my part. <laughs> um, the decree that named me a bishop by Pope Benedict has pope benedict's wax seal as like an appendix which is which is yeah it is and the way it was framed (laughs) we i framed it in such a way so that has its own little piece at the bottom around the, the the whatever you call that not the bunting but the yeah the backdrop it's right there it's oh cool so no imposter no one can say oh by the way i see i saw in the top drawer this is what the pope decided this 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 letter was decided okay And then the papal conclave is called. Now, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the rules are it cannot take place earlier than 15 days after death, but it cannot take place later than 20 days after his death. So in other words, you can't wait eight months to have a conclave. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And the reason is for travel. Now, in the old days, the cardinal electors, many of them lived in Rome, but some lived outside of Rome, and they had to take horseback or whatever it is. I mean, mm-hmm. even sometimes walk. Now, of course, with modern travel, it's different. But even with modern travel, you're not going to get there in one or two or three days. Especially if you're going like the the, the cardinal elector from Mongolia. Yeah. You talk about a trip. <sighs> and then there are the f- official days of mourning. I believe there are nine days of mourning and masses are celebrated every day and the whole church is praying right for the repose of the soul now once they arrive in rome who's a lector 80 years old or younger among the cardinals not older mm-hmm. than 80 so um the ones who are older than 80 can participate in the inaugural masses and all the rest of they, many of them i presume come to rome but they do not go into conclave and all the electors live in the Doma Santa Mata, which is the residence of the current Pope. It was designed with enough apartments that the electors, if they are 120 or less, can actually fit in one place. Wow. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine the security. You can imagine the secu- You could imagine how sophisticated technology has become to eavesdrop on a mm-hmm. conclave. So I am sure that they have an equally sophisticated surveillance system to ensure that no one can. And therefore, no cell phones are allowed, no tablets are allowed, no computers are allowed. The conclave itself occurs in the Sistine Chapel. And the only people admitted are the electors, um, selected masters of ceremony, including the papal master of ceremony, the papal head of liturgy. And then there are going to be staff, obviously, some staff. There are doctors who can be admitted if, God forbid, something happens and service staff. No news media, nothing at all. Now, the ballots themselves are all secret. And it's interesting how votes are tabulated. First, Every single elector must stand to offer the, the oath of fidelity and confidentiality and secrecy and allegiance. Every single one, one by one, all 120 plus, depending on how many electors there are. Hmm. So that's number one. Then there are, there are three scrutineers and the scrutineers are three cardinal electors who are chosen by lot. Can you imagine your names? You pull your names out, and they are the ones who verify the vote. <clears throat> okay, and they do it in a very public way. <clears throat> so, from what I understand, right, when a, when the cardinals <clears throat> cast their votes, right, they they vote, they place the name, they write the name, okay. And they stand at the altar and put the name inside the box. So one by one, they come. The ones who can't stand or can't walk, they go with a, a sealed box. They show the box is empty. They, they lock it. They go. They collect the ballots. They bring them out. Okay. And then they tabulate the vote. And for what I, for what I remember, what I was told and what I've read, there are three scrutineers. So one would say um, – uh, the name of the person being being chosen pass it to the second who reads the name again who passes to mm. a third and reads it again and then writes the name on the tablet and then when all the ballots okay are accumulated they actually thread them through a needle and string to the third tally <sighs> and the initial ballots are two thirds vote So if you don't achieve a two-thirds vote, then there's a ballot again and a ballot again. So you can imagine three cardinals, one passing, one passing, one passing, threading it, writing the name until all the ballots are done. They're all threaded. And if there is no election, then they are burned. Hmm. So it's time consuming. So people say there's only four votes a day. On the first day of the conclave, there's one vote. And then this four vote. Well, yeah, but it takes I a mean, long to take the vote, yeah. read them individually, bring them down, read them individually, thread them, see if there's a tally. Of course there's gonna be only two votes in the morning, two votes in the <laughs> afternoon.
0: <laughs> well, and there has to be discussion in between, I would imagine. Otherwise
1: Right? Right. Uh, I mean between the votes. Right. Right. And then there are also huh. three revisers who are also chosen by lot, three cardinal electors, and they check the ballots and the notes for accuracy especially if there's an election so you got six people yeah. looking at it wow and then they are the infirmari, and the infirmari are the cardinal electors also chosen by vote who by lot who go to take the ballots of the sick right so for example you could theoretically have a cardinal elector who cannot come into the Sistine Chapel because of sickness. Hmm. His ballot has to be counted. Mm -hmm. Let's say, for example, you're in intensive care, but you're still conscious. Your vote has to be counted. Yeah. Now that's, again, in the modern world with technology, it'd be curious to see how they're going to do that. But so so there are nine cardinals that actually govern all of this. <clears throat> so the famous smoke, we know that, right? white and black and all the rest. And yes. I think it was some way of of doing that. They would do that because of the straw they used, if it was wet, if it was dry. Whatever. But I think now they just use chemicals. But even with the chemicals, you remember John Paul? Well, you're, you're young. When John Paul was elected... It, it, it looked gray. I remember. It looked gray, and I was thinking to myself, is that white? Is that black? What is that? <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that is when they rang the church bells. That is when they, they rang all the bells of St. Peter's to make sure people understood there was an election of the Pope. And I think that now has become another tradition. Okay. Right? To ring the bells to make sure if you think it's white or black, it is in fact white. <laughs> and it also summons the people of God to St. Peter's. Now, of course, there are many people who wait through the elections, but you really have to be, have some real stamina to stand there yeah. all day, every day, yeah. right? Yeah. For as long as it takes. So the bells tell people, okay, drop what you're doing. This is it. Let's go. Right? Right. And then, of course, when the Pope is elected, he is formally asked whether he will accept the office of Peter. And he is asked a second question, what name does he take? And my guess is that in the dynamics of the voting, it would become clear, if there's more than one ballot, whether or not the spirit is moving towards you being the Pope which must be humbling and frightening, absolutely frightening. And so he has to give a response. So there has to be some discernment. And then he's led to the room of tears. And I love that. I love the name of that because it is. (laughs) And um, tradition holds there are three white cassocks, roughly speaking small medium and large and you take one to wear temporarily for the presentation mm-hmm. to the to the people of god and it's called the room of tears precisely because if you really consider what the awesome responsibility of the holy fathers is he is the he is the source of the unity of the church in jesus christ He is the successor of St. Peter and on his shoulder rests the administration, the pastoral life of the entire church and in his hands must weigh the salvation of 1.3 billion people. I mean, this is not glory. This is not pomp and circumstance. If people see the papacy with those eyes, they are sadly mistaken. This is self-sacrifice. This is a pouring out of one's life for the good of the church. It is a very lonely and difficult ministry at times. Because when you make a decision, it's yours, right? You have the weight of 2,000 years of lived experience in the church. So it's the room of tears because I'm sure every person who's been in that room has shed tears and perhaps they do, they're somewhat of joy, but most of them are just tears of humility before the Lord, that, Lord, if I'm going to do this, you cannot abandon me because I can't do this without you, right? And then he comes out. And who announces the Pope? It's the Dean of Cardinals. Annuncia Bobis habemus papam. And then he goes on to announce who his name. And, of course, when... Um, when John Paul was elected, I remember people going by and say, who? Who? <laughs> <laughs> because he was an Italian. You know how it, <laughs> right. right? But then when yep. he came out, his Italian was perfect, <laughs> right? They loved him. Same with Benedict, yeah, right? Yeah. Of course, I think with Pope Benedict, it was a general sense that he was certainly one yep. of the people who could conceivably be elected pope, right? Yes. And then Pope Francis was the first South American pope. Right? Yeah. And not very well known in Rome. All right? But of course he made, the, so those first moments are so important when he asked people to pray for him. I mean, it leaves such an impression because it's your introduction to the whole world. Mm-hmm. But it's such a fast now the conclave technically is still in session until the pope dismisses it. And usually it's done with either an address or the celebration of Mass, and he dismisses the cardinals. Okay. And then there is the installation, right? There used to be the coronation. Paul VI was the last to wear the tiara, but there is the mm-hmm. installation of, of the Bishop of Rome, who is also um, the leader of the church, the successor of Peter. Hmm. Interesting, no?
0: Yeah, so interesting, and it's such a huge deal. I mean, because uh I remember um both in uh, was it two thousand eight mm-hmm. that uh no it was two thousand when was Pope Benedict two thousand five. I believe so. Pope Benedict. Yeah I believe so both in two thousand five mm-hmm. and two thousand thirteen like every news media is like nonstop twenty-four hour coverage watching that uh that chimney for the white
1: smoke. Mm-hmm. I mean it's really Right, it's huge. Yeah, in fact, it's exciting. <laughs> in fact, the news media, the United States news media, already have their contracts in place. As soon as a new wow. pope is elected, they enter into contracts for the the next one because they want to be able to have the prime locations. So they want to be able to overlook yeah. the square. <laughs> they want to be able to see the smoke for themselves. So they sign long term contracts to be able to have the place to broadcast that it is that important. Wow. Right, which is extraordinary if you wow. think about it, right? Do you remember? You may have seen it when, um, when I guess it's the uh, the master of papal liturgical ceremonies when he says "extra omnes," which is a polite way of saying everybody get out before they close <laughs> and seal the doors of the conqueror. I will never forget it. He said it. I forget <laughs> the name of the fella the 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 Archbishop who was there, who did it when when we uh, when um, it was the election of John Paul before John Paul was. I, I, it was just so because st- he looked so serious. He was right at the door, mm. extra ominous, and then he closed the door and it sealed them. Right, it was like whoa, whoa, oh my gosh, whoa. <laughs> have, have you? Have you ever
0: attended, you haven't, You've obviously, Excellency, you've never been inside a conclave, but have you ever been in Rome for no, a conclave? No,
1: no, okay. I have not, no, no. The, the, two other things, just to point out. Yes. There used to be, and I think there is still, in, perhaps in a modified form, when the Pope is chosen, every cardinal promises allegiance to him, fidelity to him. Right in an act and I think in the mm-hmm. it, it used to be you would kneel before him. now I'm not sure if Pope Francis did that he may have stood and embraced them, which is what mm. obviously more you know of the temperament of Pope Francis and I think yes. temperament of the modern world, but nonetheless they have to do that. The other interesting question is does does can someone be elected Pope who is not present at the conclave? What do you think?
0: Um, Can someone be elected who's not present at the conclave? I, I believe the answer is yes. Yes. They
1: can. It can be any bishop. It can be any priest. Theoretically, it could be any layman. Huh. Can be elected pope. But if a layman is elected, obviously he would be consecrated bishop of Rome and installed as pope. If it is a priest, he would have to be ordained a bishop, be installed as the Bishop of Rome. And uh, it, it's it's of course, the chances of that are, I mean, right, And the reason is not because of the theory, but because a pope a, a pope is chosen um through a discernment process. So part of the reason the college exists, is that the cardinals come to know each other, that they come mm-hmm. to um, intuit each other, if I could use that term. Because when the discernment, the discernment acts upon our own natural capabilities, it's, uh, it's not just an inspiration that drops out of the sky. So the possibility of two thirds of the cardinals intuiting a priest in, I don't know, in Bridgeport or South Africa, or whatever. Right. I mean, what is, that would—I I don't think it's—it's it's, it, that's practical or reasonable. But one of their peers, yes, and that was—that was why I think it's important for the cardinals to gather together regularly. And I think that is the reason why Pope Francis has regular and concla- uh, gatherings mm. mm-hmm. of cardinals, so that they get to know each other. Or how else would they be able to choose? Right? Yeah, yeah. If I'm not mistaken, if. A priest worth elected pope, it's the cardinal bishop of Ostia who has the right to consecrate him pope hmm. as a bishop. And then he would be installed as pope huh. because he was the okay. last bishop to consecrate a non bishop to become bishop who eventually became pope. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> fascinating (laughs) i think it's fascinating okay what are the length of the conclaves what are the lengths of the conclaves by the way ew2n has a great article about all this on their website if anybody wants to read more about this right how many days for john the 23rd four days 11 ballots wow paul the sixth three days six ballots john paul the first two days four ballots John Paul II, three days, eight ballots. Wow. Benedict, two days, four ballots. And Pope Francis, two days, five ballots. Now, of course, mm. these are by by the reports of those who who were there present.
0: Yeah. It's- so they can't talk about it during the conclave. How much can they talk about it after the conclave? It sounds like at least a little bit. Uh,
1: uh, m- my understanding is it's secret, and it remains secret. Okay. So the fact that we know these things, chances are they are either speculation okay, because of the timing of the announcement or- And the number of smokes? Correct. Right, Uh so the ballots we would know from the smoke, right? So, so I think this is public knowledge, actually. What I just, what I just shared, but they are sworn to secrecy, and it's absolute secrecy. Got it. Yeah. Now, do we have time for uh, some fun facts? Three fun facts. A couple of fun facts. Yes, of course. We do. How many popes were elected under the age of twenty-five?
0: Oh my gosh! Uh, My first (laughs) instinct is zero, but there must be three.
1: In the history of the church Between the ages of 25 and 40 Uh, 10? 7 Okay (laughs) Between the ages of 41 and 50 41, I mean, you could be Pope for 50 years Right? Especially in the modern world (laughs) 41 and 50
0: Uh, I'd say about the same 11 8 or 10 11 Okay
1: 11 And I could go on and on Between the most Or between the ages of 61 and 70 There have been 37 popes elected between the ages of 61 and 70. There have been 17 popes elected between the ages of 71 and 80. And there have actually been three popes elected over the age of 80. Yow. In 1406, Pope Gregory XII was 81 when he was elected pope.
0: Oh, my word.
1: Isn't that fascinating? (laughs) And you know who was uh, uh, the last pope who was a priest and not a bishop? Elected Pope was Leo X.
0: Hmm.
1: Imagine. So they have uh, just about everything has happened, right? The last Frenchman was in 1370. Yeah. The last Greek was in 741. The last Italian, of course, was John Paul I. The the last Polish uh, was, of course, John Paul II. The last Portuguese was yeah. in 1276. I mean, you could go on. Uh, the, the whole history of the papacy is just fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. And Pope Benedict was not the first German, right? If you want to consider uh, the roots of what eventually became Germany, 950 years before, Victor II was what is now current oh Germany, gosh. was elected Pope. This is fascinating stuff. Wow. Mm-hmm. uh what are you, speechless? <laughs> it's, it, it's just so beautiful in my mind to see yes. the church working through the ages, to see how the Holy Spirit guides the work of the church, how to see that popes themselves are, uh, are men with their gifts and talents and perhaps with their weaknesses. Yes, And yet every age has the right man. Every age mm-hmm. has the person that is meant to lead us because God sees what we do not and can never see. It's, it's just remarkable. Under the, uh, you know, <laughs> Remember, we've quoted Napoleon when he said it would destroy the church and the French bishop says, we've been trying to destroy it for 1,800 years and we haven't succeeded. <laughs> right? it, 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 it's, there's, there's a life to the church that is is divine. And it gives me great joy and consolation to know that over and over again. Mm -hmm.
0: Deo gracias. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yes. Okay. So we need to take another break, Excellency, but we're going to be back on the other side with a listener question. Mm -hmm. So this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be right back.
2: Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed-up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there.
0: Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. All right, Excellency, good question uh, here this week. It says, Dear Excellency, I have my theories, but if all the apostles abandoned Jesus during his trial, how is it that we know all the events and
1: conversations that occurred that night? Right. Well, two things. First, I'm not sure it's correct to say all the apostles abandoned Jesus, because John did not. And he was the youngest of the apostles, and therefore he was the most courageous of them. If in his own gospel, we recall that to John was given Our Lady from the cross. So that's one. But even with that prescinding, obviously everyone else did. And the answer to the question lies in the fact that it is the memory of the church, not just the memory of the apostles, that is our deposit of faith. So it is the witness of Our Lady and the women at the at the, the cross. It's the it's the witness of the apostles Paul, who was not an apostle at the time. See, the Holy Spirit inv- inspires the entire community to be the bearer of the tradition of which the apostles are the guardians and the authentic interpreters. So I have no doubt that we know exactly what what, what did happen because, in that sense, the Church is infallible. But there was one who did not abandon him, and we should not lose sight of that.
0: Yes, and as you said, the women too—they followed
1: absolutely. Him.
0: Actually, actually, Excellency, inside Caiaphas's house also were Nicodemus, correct. Right, and probably Joseph of Arimathea. Correct. So,
1: correct, correct, absolutely. And who knows in the di- who knows, because that's part of the, the great mystery. We'll know when we were with the Lord. But who in the distance did not abandon him? I wonder to myself if mm. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary were not in Jerusalem and others, mm. you know, the ones who's, um, who are the recipients of the miracles. The fact that we don't hear yeah. about them doesn't mean that they abandoned him or they ran away necessarily, right? Right. But when, when we're right. in the glory of heaven, we'll know all of this. Like in one moment, we'll know it all. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. So
0: if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in on social media, or you can email questions at VeritasCatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at FoundationsinFaith.com. .org.
1: Thank you, Excellency, for today. Yeah, thank you, my friend. Good. And I, Before uh, we go, would you please give us your blessing? Yes, and and I want to wish you a happy Independence Day, too. The weekend, the holiday weekend is coming, right?
0: Yeah, thanks, Excellency. Thank
1: you. I will have the family up in Connecticut, so that'll be a riot. (laughs) Oh,
0: nice. Oh, (laughs) awesome. Uh, You know, I want to also ask you, uh, so yesterday, Tuesday, the uh, 27th was the 25th anniversary of my mom's passing. Oh. So for your prayers. Yes, for certainly. Her, please. What was
1: your mom's name?
0: So uh, she was known as Tammy because her, her Korean name was Tae-im. Okay. And her and her baptized name was Angela.
1: Oh, so I will, uh, I will say Mass for her. Yeah, okay, I'll say Mass you for her. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, you promise us through your son Jesus that you will always walk with us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, accompany us this day and in the days and weeks ahead that it may be a time of awakening of faith, of refreshment of our bodies and souls, and a time for us to reconnect with our loved ones and friends and family so that we may, with your help, be rejuvenated to continue the mission you have given us to proclaim the lordship of Jesus. So may your Holy Spirit bless and guide us. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And may your mom rest in peace. She's praying for us.
0: Thanks, Excellency.
1: All right, Steve. Enjoy the the weekend. All the best. You too, Excellency. Take care. See you next week. Bye-bye. Okay.